All right, dressing up like Jesus. I have a, a few slides that I think will be popping up in a moment. I see some chatter in the sound box. Um, are we good? All right, perfect. So dressing up like Jesus. So I figure before we jump into the passage, I was going to ask you a few questions. So the first question is, who are these characters? Who are these characters? Now, let's see, we'll start on your left. Who is this one over here? Does anybody know? Say it out. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Very good. There's Obi-Wan Kenobi. And who is this character in the center? Fred Flintstone, everyone's favorite caveman. And who is this character over here? Hillary Clinton, yes, the former first lady and former secretary of state. Now, a more challenging question, what do all of these characters have in common? Hmm. Well, I imagine nobody will be able to get what I am trying to get you to get at. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Whenever I was in middle school, I dressed up like Obi-Wan Kenobi for Halloween. Whenever I was in high school, I dressed up like the caveman Fred Flintstone for Halloween. And that's right, you have guessed it. Whenever I was in college, I dressed up like the former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now maybe you're wondering, does Pastor John still dress up for Halloween? <laughs> yes, I do. So only one person was able to guess why I shaved my beard this morning. That was uh, Mr. Stark. So I did this because, well, dressing up like Tim Keller was pretty easy. I was already bald. I had a blue shirt. I just had to shave my beard, which I have not done in over a decade. So they gave me a chance to bond with my wife. She's never seen me clean shaven. But then also it was a way for me to make a shameless plug for our study that we are doing on Sunday mornings called Gospel in Life. It is a Tim Keller series, 845. We just started it this morning, and it would be great to have you come out next week. It's not too late. So remember that. This is a promotion for our 845 study. Not, I'm not saying you should or should not dress up for Halloween, but this is just a promotional dress up. But this is a time of year where we all dress up. Maybe you like to dress up like your favorite superhero, or maybe you like to dress up like your favorite princess. I mean, who wouldn't want to be able to shoot cobwebs out of their arms and swing through the city and even climb up on the ceiling with your fingertips? Well, that's pretty cool, right? So every once in a while, we like to dress up like that person. Or maybe we would like to dress up like our favorite princess and have all of this power and all of these beautiful dresses and all of these diamonds and crowns and tiaras that we can wear. So once a year, we like to dress up like our favorite princess. But it's not just something that we do during Halloween, right? We like to dress up and we like to pretend and copy people throughout our entire lives. Now imagine that one of your best friends gets a really cool toy, like this Lego Woody alarm clock. And you see that toy and you think, wow, my friend looks so cool with that alarm clock. I have to get one too so I can be cool like my friend. Or maybe you have a friend who starts taking kung fu classes. You see their cool robe, you see them getting all these neat colored belts, you see all of their cool moves, and you think, I have to dress up like them. I have to enroll and I have to take kung fu classes too. Now, I resonate with those first two examples, and this third one I don't really resonate with, but I'm assuming somebody does out there. You see your friends start to grow up, 
And they start to put makeup on. They start to put on blush and eyeliner and all these little goodies. And you think, wow, I need to dress up like so-and-so so I can be cool as well. And if you think about it, this continues all the way on until we are adults. We're always dressing up like somebody. Well, Scripture teaches us that we are surrounded by a cloud of people, a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of great Christians, people who have walked with God, and actually those are the people that we are supposed to be copying, not the kung fu master and not those with the most beautiful makeup, and not even Spider-Man, unfortunately. Now, about a month ago, I had some holiday time, some vacation, and we went to a couple different churches. Uh, Does anybody recognize this church? All right, so it is the chapel at Stanford University uh, in California. And if you go into this church, it is magnificent. And as you walk around, you see all of these different stories from the Bible depicted in art. You see uh, David and Goliath, where David is the victor over Goliath. You see Daniel and the lion, where he has survived the night in the lion's den. And you see the other prophets like Ezekiel, you see Isaiah, and you see all of these people from the Bible. And it's like, these are the ones that we are supposed to be copying, and there's a reminder. The Bible says there's a cloud of witnesses that surround us. They were supposed to copy, and it's like they're cheering us on. But of all the examples in Scripture, there's one that is the greatest example, whose life we are supposed to follow. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. So before we see how can we dress up like Jesus, we have to look at the question, How did Jesus live as a child? So we're going to look at this passage from Luke 2, and then we're going to see how can we dress up and live like Jesus Christ. All right, so this passage opens up where Jesus is only 12 years old, and he and his family, they're setting out on a vacation. It's not a vacation to Disneyland. It's not a vacation to the beach. It's not even a vacation to the mountains to go skiing. They are going to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple in Jerusalem from where Jesus and his family lived, it was only about 80 miles away. So that's not very far for us. If you're thinking like me, well, 80 miles, if I were to hop into a Tesla, pop on ludicrous mode, eh, traffic's not bad. I could be there in like 45 minutes maybe. Well, back then they didn't have ludicrous mode. They didn't have Teslas. They didn't even really have paved roads. So 80 miles was a great long distance. They had to travel on camels. They had to travel on donkeys. Yeah, they, they had roads, but they weren't like the roads that we have today. There were, there were no pit stops. There were no gas stations. There were no convenience stores. There were robbers on the side of the road. So you had to be very, very careful. Jesus and his parents, Mary and Joseph, just the three of them couldn't make this vacation plan happen. They had to go with their extended family. They had to invite their cousins and their relatives and their neighbors. They had to invite an entire community. And that just made things slower. So to go this 80 miles to the temple, it would have been like a three or four day journey. Well, eventually they get there to the temple. And the reason that they are going on this vacation is not so they can get some cool postcards or souvenirs or keychains. They're actually going because they are going to be celebrating the Passover Think back to the story of the Exodus, where God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt. There were these ten plagues, and the last plague was a plague of death. And the only way to avoid having death come and visit your house was to kill a lamb. 
And to sacrifice that lamb, take that blood from the lamb and put it on your doorpost. After that plague, God delivered the people of Israel. And that remembrance, the festival to remember that, was called Passover, because death passed over those houses that had the blood of the lamb. So Jesus and his family go all the way to the temple, a three or four day journey to celebrate the Passover. Now this passage tells us almost nothing about what happened during their vacation there while they were there. The text just says that after they celebrated the Passover, they got back on their camels and their donkeys and in their caravan, and they started back on their three or four day journey. Well, they travel all day. I'm imagining they were marching through the desert, they were riding uncomfortable camels all the way, but probably like seven hours, right? They get to the end of their destination for the first day. They're going to unload, they're going to relax and, and have a good rest that night. But Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, they begin looking around and they don't see Jesus anywhere. Maybe they thought that Jesus was traveling with his cousins. So they go and they talk to Jesus' cousins. No, they don't find him. Maybe they thought Jesus was with the neighbors. So they go and they talk to the neighbors. No, Jesus wasn't there at all. You might be thinking, that's ridiculous. How could parents lose a child on a family vacation? Well, that seems quite preposterous to me as well. I don't understand it. But if Home Alone has taught us anything, (laughs) that in the hustle and bustle of the holidays and planning for a trip, sometimes kids get misplaced. And if you remember how Kevin's parents reacted, whenever they realized that their youngest son was missing, the parents were freaking out. They were terrified. They couldn't eat properly. They couldn't sleep properly. They were so worried about getting back to their lost son. Now, I can only imagine that Mary and Joseph were far more anxious than Kevin McAllister's parents because they hadn't just lost a child. They had lost the Son of God. Where in the world should they even begin looking? I mean, it's nighttime. They've been marching all day through the desert. Everybody there wants to sleep. There's robbers on the way back. Did they have to wait overnight until everybody woke up to go back? Did they start marching through the night to get back to Jerusalem? And, and they're exhausted. They, they don't sleep. They begin looking all over Jerusalem for the usual places kids would hang out. They look in the roller coasters, the sweet shops, the bakeries, the arcades. But no Jesus. Three days they were looking for their lost son, but could not find him. Until they checked an unusual place, they went back to church. And in the temple, there they found Jesus as a 12-year-old. Now, I've been a teacher of an elementary school for seven years. I've been on some of the most extravagant field trips you can imagine. We even went above the Arctic Circle in Finland with a bunch of second graders. I've lost kids all over the world in the most unusual places, but I have never found a lost kid hiding out in the temple, let alone doing what Jesus Christ was doing. Jesus was in the midst of all of these pastors and theologians and scholars, and he's asking them questions, not simple questions. He's asking them amazing questions, questions that make all of the scholars realize this young boy knows more than we do. Now, picture this scene of pastors and theologians sitting there. It wouldn't be like pastors like me sitting there. It would be pastors of the greatest churches in the United States. It would be the theologians from the greatest universities. 
Picture like the Archbishop of Canterbury. Picture Tim Keller. Picture a great theologian from Harvard Divinity School. They're all sitting there. And here they realize that this 12-year-old boy, based on his questions, knows more than they do. This was an impressive feat. Everybody was amazed. Everybody had their eyes fixated on this 12-year-old boy with such amazing wisdom. But not everybody was as happy with Jesus and marveled at him like the scholars and theologians. His parents were rather upset. We see what Mary says to her son. Son, Jesus, why have you treated us like this? Your father, Joseph, and I, we have been anxiously searching for you. For three days we have not eaten. We have not slept. We have dragged around all your relatives and neighbors all throughout Jerusalem looking for you. And we are in great distress. Why did you do this to us? Now, I would expect a child to say something like, Oh, I'm so sorry, Mom and Dad. I'm I'm so glad to see you. I'm sorry for all of this trouble. Or to say something like, Well, I, I just missed you guys. I woke up late and you were gone. I didn't know where else to go. You know, Jesus doesn't give us an an answer like that, does he? Look at how he responds. Jesus says, well, why were you searching for me? Well, I can think of several reasons, Jesus. First of all, they're your parents. What would you expect them to do? But here Jesus answers with yet another question. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? I can only imagine what Joseph must have been thinking in this moment. Exactly, Jesus, I am your father. We're going back to my house, but you were not going back with us. We hear Jesus is talking in these puzzling questions. He's referring to God as his father, and he's acting as if he's confused that Mary and Joseph were looking for him. Well, instead of getting the good old backhand, like some of us might want to give a child who's disappeared for three days, his parents instead are confused. They are baffled by what Jesus is saying. So then after this, Jesus follows his parents back to their home after this three or four day journey. And then they say that Jesus was obedient from this point on, that he was submissive to his parents. So there's this kind of a confusing episode in the life of Jesus as a young child. And it says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, treasured up this great mystery. She didn't understand it, but she treasured it in her heart. This was something that she held on to. She watched Jesus continue to grow and to develop. And from those moments on, she always treasured that experience at the temple. Now, before we go on and see exactly how we dress up like Jesus, I want to point out how unusual and how important this story is. You see, we know a lot about Jesus whenever he was born. Right? We, we have prophecies that indicate he's going to have this miraculous birth. We see that King Herod was trying to kill him, so he had to flee into Egypt. We see him being presented in the temple. And then after his birth, we don't have a lot of information about him until he's baptized by John the Baptist, which is some 30 years later. So we have this kind of mystery of Jesus' life, these 30 years where we don't have much, except this one story. Now, people try to fill in what Jesus may or may not have been doing. They think, well, maybe he was doing this in in Egypt while he was there. Maybe he was traveling to these different regions and teaching this or doing this and that. 
I'm happy to talk about some of those, but I take a very different approach. I think what was happening in here is those first 30 years of Jesus' life, they're not a mystery. I think all of that culminated in this particular story. Meaning I think there's something in this story that teaches us almost everything we need to know about Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is 100% God. He's the Son of God. He's completely divine. But he is also entirely human. And in this passage, we see that Jesus is a human being because his parents are there. Mary and Joseph are saying, you are our son. Why have you done this to us? So we see that, yes, Jesus is a human being. But we also see that Jesus is divine. He's talking about God as his father. It's not just that he's only Mary's child. He is also God's child. He is divine and human. We see that he is human because he goes back with his parents. He is submissive to them. He obeys them for the rest of his life with his parents. But we also see that he is God. Because even the wisest theologians and pastors and scholars are amazed at his wisdom when he is still a child. So in this passage, we see the great mysteries of Jesus Christ coming together. Now that we have seen this passage, we've seen how Jesus lived as a child, now we have to see, okay, how can we dress up like Jesus? Now to do this, I have four envelopes. And in the spirit of giving out candy, I need children to come help me find uh, these envelopes. Uh, And as they do that, they will be able to pick a piece of candy. But they can only eat that piece of candy whenever their parents say that it is okay. All right, so the first one you can see here is a yellow envelope. Who would be able to come up and be the bravest one to start out? All right, I saw Hajun's hand first. So Hajun, you want to come up? You got to find the yellow envelope, and then you can pick a piece of candy, but only eat it when your parents say it's okay. Where's the yellow one? Perfect. And you can find a piece of candy. I got something on the Halloween. You got what? Oh, nice. You have a bunch of candy coming your way. All right. All right, so let's take a look and see what the first way we can dress up like Jesus. All right, it says, can everybody read it? Protect your candy. Protect your candy. So with each of these cards, there's going to be a practical tip for how to survive Halloween. And then there's going to be ways that you can dress up like Jesus. All right, so for Halloween, the most important thing you have with you when you go out trick-or-treating, of course, is your candy. But the bullies also know this. And they're going to be looking for ways to steal your candy. So if you want to survive Halloween, you have to protect your candy. You have to protect what is most important. And in the life of Jesus, we see him protecting what is the most important. And that is time with his heavenly Father. Now, there's many different ways that you can spend time with God. Coming here and and worshiping corporately, this is one of the best ways you can connect with God. We sing together, we're going to have the Lord's Supper in a little bit, and we, we read the scriptures, we hear the scriptures talked about. Some of those are the most precious times, or the most important times, and we need to protect those times, the same way that you would protect your candy at Halloween. But we also have times where we meet in Christian community groups, like small groups, the study in the morning, or even kids' club. Those are times we can spend with our Heavenly Father, and we have to protect those times. And we can even spend time with God by ourselves. We can pray to Him, 
We can read passages of Scripture, and those ought to be protected. In the same way that bullies come and try to steal your candy, or there's bullies that come and try to take your time away from the Father as well. Maybe video games try to keep you from praying, or some other cool activity tries to keep you from coming to church. But if we want to dress up and clothe ourselves like Jesus, we have to protect what is most important. And I think there's something in this passage for families as well. We see that Mary and Joseph, they planned their family vacation around going to the temple, around remembering the great events of Israel's redemptive history. So it'd be great if you guys could all organize all of your trips to to visit churches, but I, I don't expect any of us to do that, including myself. But whenever you go on vacation, that's a time for you to go visit other churches, to just look one up and take your kids in and talk about it afterwards. Or maybe if you can't find a church you feel comfortable with, spend some time in the Word. Go to the local supermarket and buy a loaf of bread and buy some some, uh, Welch's grape juice, and then you can have uh, the Lord's Supper together as a family. So the first thing, if we want to dress up like Jesus, we must protect our time with God. Which leads us to number two, the green envelope and another piece of candy. Uh, Oh man, this one's tough. I think Clara's hand was up pretty quickly there. All right, so can you help me find the green envelope and a piece of candy? All right, where is the green envelope? All right, very good. And which piece of candy would you like? Nice, good choice. All right, so let's see, what have we got in this one? All right, so my handwriting's not that good and it's small to see, so we have the PowerPoint to help us. It says, ask amazing questions. So whenever you go trick-or-treating and you go up to somebody's house, if you just say something boring, like trick or treat, you're just going to get one piece of candy. But if you do something amazing, you're likely to get far more. One time a little girl came to my door dressed as Little Red Riding Hood. I gave her one piece of candy and she said, oh, well, I'm going to see my grandmother and she doesn't like this piece of candy. She likes the Butterfingers. Can she have a Butterfinger? Okay, so I gave her Butterfinger. She kept going, well, I think my grandma is going to have company, and I think they really like Twix. Do you have any Twix? Before I knew it, this girl had nearly cleaned me out because she was asking amazing questions. In the same way, we can dress up like Jesus by coming to church and asking amazing questions. As we ask questions, we are learning, but we're actually helping other people around us learn as well. You see, Jesus Christ was 100% human and 100% God. He could have, you know, anything that the human part of Jesus wanted to know, he could have accessed from the divine part of himself. He didn't need to go asking questions so he could learn. No, we see a picture of Jesus' humility, that he was asking questions to teach those around us. Now, whenever we come to church and ask amazing questions, we are learning, but we're helping other people learn. And adults and parents, we need to be fostering this idea of our kids asking these good questions. Imagine how excited we would be if we saw our children sitting at a table with, with Elon Musk and you know, all these smart entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos. And he's there, you know, our child is there asking these guys questions. And Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are amazed by your child's wisdom. Like, oh, I never thought of that. Now we can get to Mars and, and populate a planet based on your child's questions. We would be so excited about that, right? We would pat our kid on the boy and, yeah, that's sick. You got that genetics from my side of the family. <laughs> but imagine if we were to see our kid at a table 
with theologians and pastors and asking those same types of questions, would we be that excited? Well, if they're in that context having those discussions about God and asking those questions, they're dressing up like Jesus. So you ought to be fostering that sense of curiosity and excitement in church and around God. All right, so we need to protect our candy. We need to ask amazing questions. And that leads us to number three, the red envelope. Oh, I saw one of the Kelly girls, but they all had their hands up at the same time. So uh, Mr. Kelly, Mrs. Kelly, did you see one of them with their hands up first? Um, Oh, man. All right, Micah, help me out. Which one? Okay, come on up. Micah, you can pick. I can't uh, distinguish which twin is which from this far back. All right, so you need to find the red one before you pick your piece of candy. Is this the red one? That is a red one. It's kind of pink, so it's confusing. All right, nice. Everybody's choosing the lollipops, so if anybody wants some Milky Ways, I will have plenty after the service. All right, and this one, number three, simple, sweet, but oh so, so important. Be obedient. At some point on your trick-or-treating adventure, mom and or dad are going to say, it's time to go home. And you cannot cry, you cannot cause a fit, because your mom and dad know best. They know that you have school in the morning. Halloween's on a Monday, that means trick-or-treating. You still got to get up and go to school on Tuesday, and you have to be obedient. We see this in the life of Jesus. He was submissive to his parents. It means he went back and he obeyed his parents. And guess what? Jesus was smarter than his parents. He had to submit, he had to obey somebody that was not as smart as him. And sometimes, whenever we have to obey those in authority, we're doing the same thing, whether it's our parents, even our teachers. I had some kids in elementary school that were smarter than me, believe it or not, but they still had to do their worksheets. And you're going to be following this all the way until you were an adult. You have to obey people that you don't like. You have to obey people that are dumber than you. You're going to have to obey the law. You're going to have to obey your boss. You're going to have to obey the government and maybe even a pastor or two. There's this great saint of the faith, actually a very controversial guy, but I like him, named Origen. Uh, He was writing about 300 years after Christ, 200 years after Christ, and he said that he thinks it is a rule that God always puts lesser men and women in charge of greater men and women. That way it can teach us humility and the humility of Jesus Christ. So if we want to dress up like Jesus, we must be obedient. All right, and this, this brings us to our last one, the blue envelope. I believe Luke was the fastest on this one. So Luke, come on up. Blue envelope, perfect, and a piece of candy. All right, Milky Way, good choice. All right, and last, but certainly not least, treasure unknown treats. Treasure unknown treats. All right, so after a night of protecting your candy, asking amazing questions, being obedient to your parents, you get home. You have your candy stash. You dump it out on your bed away from your brothers and sisters so nobody can steal any. And you start going through and you see all the candies that you're really excited about. You got your Twix, you got your Butterfingers, and all of your favorites. But then you see that there's some weird ones lying in there. Charleston Chew? Seriously, who gave me Charleston Chew? 
Well, sometimes those unknown treats can become your favorite. I know this from personal experience. There was a particular type of potato chip that I thought to myself, nobody in the world really buys this and eats it. Well, guess what? I married somebody who buys that particular potato chip and eats it, and now I love it. I'm a huge fan of this particular chip. So whenever we go through something that is unknown, sometimes they can become great treats. We see this in this narrative of Jesus Christ. But yes, he was 12 years old, but we must not forget that he was always the son of God. And he taught us, the church, one lesson in the first 30 years of his life, after his birth, before his baptism. And this is the lesson he chose in that whole three decades of his life to present to us. And it was a painful lesson. Imagine the type of pain and uncertainty he put his parents under. They didn't know where his, their child was for three days. Think of the type of angst and nervousness and the wreck that his parents were, yet there was a point. And at the end of this lesson, we see that Mary was treasuring that point in her heart. What is this thing that Jesus is trying to teach us? Well, remember I said that this was the festival of the Passover, where they cooked a lamb and they ate that lamb. They remembered the sacrifice that that lamb brought. That sacrificial lamb brought their ancestors freedom. Well, Jesus is teaching us in this passage that he is the greater lamb at Passover. He is not simply an animal. He is a human being, which is similar to an animal, but he is also the son of God which is infinitely greater than anything in creation. He is the greater Passover lamb. And I think he was actually preparing his parents for another three days. They looked for their son everywhere for three days because they had lost him. Well, after Jesus died on the cross, he was placed in the tomb for three days before his parents and Mary were able to find them again. So we see in this passage that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is a human being, and as the Son of God and as a human being, he would have loved his parents more than any other child had ever loved his parents. And he put his parents through torture so that they could understand the gospel, so that they could understand the death and the resurrection. And this is a great message that we have for the entire church. Whether you were a child or an adult, or anything in between or beyond, any time the Son of God takes his church through pain, he's doing it for a purpose. He loved his mom probably more than anybody else in the world at this point, yet he put his mother through the most difficult anguish she had ever been, not because he did not love his mother, but because he did love his mother. RBC, we have been through a lot in the last six to nine months. I don't know why. I have no idea why God would take us through this. But what I do know from this story is it's not because he does not love us. In fact, all of these trials and all of these difficulties make it seem that he loves us more than we ever imagined. With this God, there are no tricks. There are only treats. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage. 
We thank you for all that we learn about the Son of God and the Son of Man coming as one to be our sacrificial lamb. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to cling to that lamb, to have all of our sins washed away so that we can find true deliverance. We pray that you'll help all of us dress up like Jesus, not just for Halloween, but for every day of our lives. We pray that you would help us to protect our time with you as the most precious thing we have. We pray that you would give us minds that inquire and go deeper into the scriptures and into the truths of Christianity. We pray that you would make us a people that are obedient, that are submissive to the authority structures you have given us. And we pray, Lord, that as we wait during these times of mystery and even during these times of pain, we pray that you would help us to treasure these moments in our heart because you are a God of love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.